You're listening to Generation X Paranormal with your host, Logan Mathias. And now, on with the show. was the 1920s. Some call it the Roaring Twenties. It was the jazz age, Art Deco had peaked, and for women, knee-high skirts and dresses became socially acceptable. And if you were walking through town, you found a green door, there was a good chance there was a speakeasy behind that door. And Scottish scientist Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, by accident incidentally. And it was a great, great time for trends, uh, especially certain brands that we know and love today. Uh, Brands like Wonder Bread, Baby Ruth, Kool-Aid, Welch's Grape Jelly, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, one of my favorites, Wheaties, and Hostess Cakes. One notable year was 1928. In this year, a Missouri baker invented sliced bread, and a short called Steamboat Willie introduced the world to Mickey Mouse. During this time, there was also unprecedented industrial growth. This was seen as there was a large-scale adoption of automobiles, telephones, motion pictures, radio, and household electricity. All of these were made by a very sustained economic prosperity, and it was visible in a lot of major cities, Paris, New York, Berlin, London, and also Chicago. A booming economy and a culture oppressed by the inability to have a few. This gave way to massive organized crime, especially in the city of Chicago. You see, to appreciate any sweet, you must also entertain the sour. And the sour that ran through the Chicago streets came in waves of Chicago mob. While gambling and prostitution were very lucrative for the crime families, none were more lucrative than bootlegging. Now, there were a lot of crime families during that time, but for the purpose of this story, we're going to focus on the Northside Gang, called the Northside Mob. It was primarily made up of Irish, Polish, American criminals. And their principal rival, the Southside Gang, also known as the Chicago Outfit. This crime syndicate was made up primarily of Italians, Italian Americans. But we'll get to them here in just a minute. First, we'll talk about the Northside Gang. Now, they originated, as many of the gangs did at that time, from Market Street Gang. That gang was made up mainly with pickpockets, sneak thieves, and labor sluggers working in the 42 and 43rd wards. And at the beginning of Prohibition, the Northsiders quickly took control of existing breweries and distilleries in the north side of Chicago. At the beginning of the 20s, this gang was headed by Dion O'Banion. Reportedly at the height of his power, he's supposedly making about a million dollars a year from liquor. And that was in the 20s. And after marrying Viola Caniff, they bought a flower shop, William Schofield's flower shop as a matter of fact, in River North area. 
near the corner of Chicago Avenue and North State Street. Of course, now it's a parking lot. See, he needed a legitimate front for his criminal operations, and why not flowers? He always liked them. And oddly enough, Schofields became the florist of choice for mob funerals. Now, during the 20s, obviously the relationships between the North Side mobsters and the South Side mobsters became incredibly strained, each one of them wanting to corner the market of the now ever popular bootlegging industry. Now, on the South Side, the Chicago outfit was led by John Donato Torrio. Now, the outfit, they had criminal activities ranging anywhere from loan sharking, illegal gambling, prostitution, extortion, and everybody's favorite, political corruption. And, of course, murder. Now, the one thing the Southsiders did that the Northsiders did not engage in was prostitution. That was something that the Northside gang refused to be involved in. Now, organized crime in Chicago was never completely monopolized, but the outfit honestly has always been known as the most powerful, violent, and largest criminal organization in Chicago, and quite frankly, in the entire Midwest region. And in 1920, along with his right-hand man that we all know by Al Capone, they decided to try to create a truce between all the rival crime groups which basically led to have an agreement of Northsiders, they get to sell on the North side, Southsiders, well, of course, they sell on the South side. And that pretty much was the, the end of it. That kept, in their minds at least, from being gang wars and things getting quite out of hand. And unfortunately, it didn't work out so well. In four short years, it all sort of fell apart. You see, in the North, uh, a gang found out that the Jenna brothers who were close to the Torrio gang, Torrio gang, I should say, were selling booze on the north side. Obviously, that's an infringement on the agreement they had all agreed on. So Banyan went to Torrio and said, hey, you know, give us a hand here. You're the one that says you're going to settle all these disputes. You know, maybe you can do something for us, help us from this happening again, or there might be problems. But this turned out to be uh, an unfruitful effort, and Torrio did nothing to stop the brothers from selling on the north side. And it was with that they decided, hey, we're just going to take it into our own hands. They went ahead and hijacked Jenna beer shipments. So in 1924, O'Banion learned that the police were planning on raiding one of his breweries. It was called the Seabin Brewery. And with that knowledge, he said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and go to Torrio and say, you know, what? I want out of this. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, would you be interested in buying out, you know, my share? And I just want to retire to Colorado. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. So Torrio agreed to buy O'Bannon's share and gave him half a million bucks. So that was a, that was a pretty good deal, I think, for uh, Torrio in his mind. So the morning of the deal, the police did, in fact, uh, raid the uh, brewery and shut it down. And Torrio, O'Banion and several other others were arrested. Now, Torrio, this was not his first time. See, what happened in those days, if you were uh, a repeat offender, you were given mandatory jail time. And it is Torrio's feeling that O'Banion knew this, and he felt like he was betrayed and conned out a half a million bucks. Now, Torrio obviously wanted to take immediate retaliation, but one of the other family organizations, Mike Merlo, said, hey, you know what? Take a beat. We have a very big interest in keeping peace between us. And, you know, we want to make sure that we keep from having gang wars burst out into the streets. And Torrio agreed. So he was a bit reluctant, but he said, OK, I, I respect you and we'll go ahead and, and hold off. However, in the winter of 1924, 
Mike Merlot died of cancer. So, remember how I'd mentioned in the beginning that the O'Banion shop, Showfield Flowers, had kind of become the uh, the organized crime flower shop and did all the funerals? Well, they were charged with doing Mike Merlot's funeral. So, Torrio hatched a plan to basically assassinate his rival, and a few of his henchmen did exactly that. They walked into the back of the Showfield flower shop and shot O'Banion in the head. This placed Jaime Weiss as head of the North Gang, and he was backed by Vincent Drucci, and more importantly, Bugs Moran. Now, if war is what they were looking for, it was where they absolutely got. In January 1925, Al Capone was ambushed, leaving him shaken, but he was fairly unhurt. And just a mere 12 days later, Torrio and his wife Anna were ambushed outside their home by Weiss, Drucci, and Marone. Now, Torrio was shot several times and nearly killed, and after recovering, he decided, well, that's it for me. I'm going to resign. I'm going to hand this thing over to Al Capone. And with that, Al Capone's reign was officially started. Now, Al Capone was having none of that noise. Once he took over, he decided, well, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to go ahead and get this thing done. So he, of course, he got a contract for Weiss, Drucci, and Moran. So he actually assaulted Drucci and Moran with their entourage and uh, I guess basically just unloaded on them on a gun battle. Now, amazingly enough, they both survived. And yes, as you would imagine, Weiss retaliated on September of 1926 against Capone and just, I think, unloaded somewhere around a thousand rounds. Um, and of course, police at the time believe Weiss, Ducci, and Moran and the Gunsberg brothers were the men who fired the weapons. And as you can probably guess, Capone was able to escape unharmed. Now, a longtime associate of Weiss's, Joe Satiste, was on trial for murder. And October 11th of 1926, there was some jury selection going on. And at that time, Weiss and four of his bodyguards were spotted there. Once the selection was done, they went ahead and headed back to Sofield Flowers. And as they parked their vehicles and rounded a corner, they were met by guns blazing. And unfortunately, that saw the end of Weiss and Murray. And it was at this time, Bugs Moran became the leader of the Northside Gang. Now you have Bugs Moran leading the North, and you have Al Capone leading the South. Now, I went on and gave you a lot of the backstory because some of you may not know some of the particulars, but I thought it was important so you understood the, the levity of what happened during the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Because these two crime syndicate families fought for four years, brutal, bloody war on the streets of Chicago. Now, it's with that knowledge, I'm going to bring us full circle to February 14th, 1929, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Now, as legend has it, Al Capone had a connection to the Detroit uh, mob family, we'll just say for lack of better words, and that connection was Fred Killer Burke. So he had somewhat of a, of a connection with people in Detroit. Now, it's, it's long since been argued that Bugs Moran received a tip from somebody in the Detroit area, the Detroit uh, Mafia, that there would be a, a shipment of Canadian whiskey that he could get a really good deal on, and they were going to go ahead and deliver that to him in Chicago. And this shipment would have been delivered to 2122 North Clark Street. 
Now that address, 2122 North Clark Street at the time, was was controlled by Moran, and it was operating as SMC Cartage Garage. And this location was in the absolutely beautiful uh, Lincoln Park area of Chicago. And to give you just sort of a quick history on this, uh, I have family from South Chicago. And even to this day, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, Oftentimes, the Northsiders are thought of as having a, a, large, a large amount of affluence, whereas the Southsiders are typically seen as being more impoverished. That's not necessarily true anymore, but it is at least one of the views of those particular areas. Now, on the morning of February 14, 1929, Moran ordered seven of his associates to be at that location to receive this shipment. Moran told his associates that he would meet them there on that morning. Now, see, Moran thought this would be a good way to, to give a, a hard blow to Capone's, I guess for lack of better words, Capone's incoming whiskey distribution that was coming through the Detroit River. And he figured hijacking some of that would put a, a pretty big dent in his economy. The Moran associates were John May, Albert Weinshank, Reinhardt Schwimmer, Adam Hayer, Albert Koschelik, Frank and Peter Gussenberg. Now the Gussenbergs, they were they were Moran's muscle. They were enforcers. Albert Koschelik, well, he was more known as James Clark, and he was Moran's second in command. Adam Hayer, he was just a bookkeeper. He was business manager of the Moran gang. And now Albert Weinshank, he managed several cleaning and dyeing operations for Moran, but his resemblance to Moran is allegedly what set the massacre in motion. See, Moran had a certain type of clothing that he wore, and apparently Weinshank did as well. And the clothes that he was wearing and kind of how he looked basically let everybody know that, hey, this thing was on. Another associate was uh, an occasional car mechanic and a, a bank safe cracker, John May. And one of the, the saddest and most ironic murders, or victims, I should say, was Reinhard Schwimmer. Now, he was an optometrist by trade, and this guy abandoned his trade so he could gamble on horse racing and associate with the gang. Now, at approximately 10.30 in the morning on St. Valentine's Day, a police car pulled up in front of the garage. Merging from the vehicle would be two uniformed policemen and two plainclothes men who were thought to either be FBI or someone of that nature. With them were several, several weapons, but more notably two shotguns and two Tommy guns, would later be called the Chicago typewriter. Now these four men entered the shop and since technically no one was able to live to tell the story, uh, reportedly, these four men went in, and the seven men, thinking that this was just a simple raid, uh, obviously they went ahead and, and went along with what they were saying. So they were disarmed. Uh, so obviously they had no weapons, and with them was a dog, and I think the dog was tied up to a truck. The four men then instructed the seven men to put their hands on the adjacent brick wall, and they were going to get, quote-unquote, brought in for processing. Unfortunately, that did not happen. These seven men were gunned down by the four perpetrators. Uh, I believe somewhere around 70 rounds were fired out of those machine guns, and they just absolutely obliterated them. Now, you would think that this being in an affluent area and there's a lot of people around to hear it, that there would have been people that actually heard it and reported it. But you got to think, these people saw 
policemen go into a building, then heard subsequent, you know, uh, gunfire. So I guess they just figured, well, uh, this is this is just a police bus and this is something normal. And then just very shortly after the gunshot stopped, gunshots stopped, I should say, uh, the four men came out. Only this time, the two policemen, quote unquote, were uh, basically were leading the two plainclothes men by gunpoint and the plainclothes men were in handcuffs. So they would have probably thought, OK, well, they arrested the people that were shooting and let's let's get on with our lives. However, a few hours later, um, one of the neighbors, she heard this dog barking. She was really concerned that nobody was consoling this dog. So her and another neighbor decided, well, let's let's go take a look. So as they came around and went into the building, they obviously they saw the the absolute carnage and uh, reported that. Now, Al Capone was never charged for this, but it's long since believed that that was an attempt to eliminate Bugs Moran. And one of the uh, one of the more interesting facts um, is that Bugs Moran in the vehicle pulled up along the uh, the building in the back of the building, I should say, and locked eyes with one of the seven men who were being held at gunpoint. And they, I guess they nodded and uh, Bugs said, well, I guess I, I guess I better get out of here. I don't want to get caught up in this and get arrested. And he he went ahead and left and went to a, uh, a very close cop coffee shop and awaited for, for further news. Now, amazingly, there was one survivor, Frank Gusenberg. And now Frank, Frank has sustained 14 bullet wounds. So, and he had laid there for four, what, three, four hours. So it was amazing. He was still alive and he was taken to the hospital and the doctors were able to stabilize him for a little while. But, um, the police, uh, they really just kind of kept hitting him going, who did this? How did this happen? And reportedly he said, no one shot me. And he kind of, he did not give up anyone. So, and he ended up dying very shortly thereafter. Now, as of recording, this was 94 years ago that this happened. Now, in that time, we have had no one arrested for this crime. It has gone completely unpunished. Now, it's long since believed it was ordered by Capone, but he was never, he was never prosecuted for it. And all these murders have gone without anybody standing trial for them. So now the fallout is my understanding that that when something tragic like this happens, I believe that there's always some kind of attachment of souls who have lost a lost a life so abruptly. And I also feel that if these souls go on into the, the ethereal plane without their their killers being brought to justice, I would think that would cause some sort of issue as well. Now, some of the paranormal aftermath of this incident. So the garage at 2122 North Clark Street was demolished in 1967. And that was done by the city because they really wanted to to get away from some of these uh, these well-known crime areas throughout the entire city. Uh, you know, just kind of wanted to clean up and give a facelift to the city. And, and that's understandable. Um, but at any rate, they they tore down this this building now. While they were tearing down that building, the bricks from the north wall where all the victims were shot was uh, basically brought it was taken down brick by brick and they were numbered so they could be put together in sequence. Um, you know, obviously they knew at that time there was some sort of historical significance behind this wall and these bricks um, and they didn't want to completely destroy them. And as of this recording, the city has stated there will never be a building built on the land where that garage once stood. So it sort of serves as a, a 
I guess some sort of remembrance, but not. Um, obviously, the city does not want to remember or tie to a, a grain. Uh, I'm sorry, a mob hit like that. But it does have some relevance in our history. So, with that being said, the building adjacent to the wall where the where the victims were shot is now an apartment complex. And the the people that live in that apartment complex have have complained about paranormal issues for for many many years. Things of of disembodied moans to uh, things being thrown off of of shelves um, to hearing dogs bark. Um, and it is known that when you walk your dog in that area, it, it has a reaction to that that hallowed ground. And of course, some people say they're channeling the the dog um, that was there, but. I mean, dogs have a sense, and I think that they sense that something evil happened here. I would have to imagine that if I was taken from this this earth so violently, I, I'd want some answers. So I, I could see where there would be some some borderline paranormal issues. But uh, and another interesting fact. The bricks, as I talked about, um, they were purchased by a Canadian businessman, and for many years, <laughs> they were displayed at his bar. And the bar... This is this is the part that I think makes this story absolutely awful. But he put it in the men's room of the bar and reportedly had had a plexiglass film over it or plexiglass in, in, in a sense over the bullet holes and men could, quote unquote, shoot the holes while they were relieving themselves. Now, I'm not one to say that. uh that certain actions re will cause a reaction of the paranormal. But if anything would, I think that would. I mean, in essence, they were defiling a very, very sacred thing to those to those men. I mean, they're if you believe in soul, their soul left a quote unquote stain on those bricks. Now, since then, the bar has been closed and the bricks were given to the Mob Museum in Vegas. And you can go see them now. I've seen them. Um, it's pretty amazing. But uh, they, they shows where the bullet holes are. Um, now they've got some red blood, quote unquote, coming out of the, the bullet holes. I don't believe that's still the same blood, but at least they're trying to represent where people were. Um, but as I said, nobody was charged for this crime. So... This is the point where I ask you guys, what do you think? First of all, do you think Capone did it? I, I, I personally think there's nobody else that could have done it. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. Obviously, a bunch of people could have done it. But who who stood to, I guess, prosper from the death of Moran and, and his people? Obviously, it was Capone. Um, you know, Capone obviously came to his own end um, and things didn't go necessarily great for him. But... You know, I still think to this day he was responsible for it. And there's quite a bit um, out there about Fred Burke and these people in, in a Detroit connection to the murders. Um, and if you want to, I would go ahead and look that up. It is a good it's a good read. Um, I won't get into it too much into this because I'm going to keep this one a little shorter. But, um, you know, what do you think? You think it was Capone? I don't know. And what do you feel about the city of Chicago tearing it down? I personally, I'm in favor for it because it's it's probably something that if I was a metropolis like that, I'd want to, I wouldn't want that attachment. And then the other part of me says, why would you get rid of it? I mean, it's part of history. So yeah, I'm pretty torn on that, but you know, let me know what you think. But um, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for listening. If you've made it this far, uh, please consider subscribing and, uh, you know, we'll get another one out to you here pretty soon. Have a good one.
This has been Generation X Paranormal. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs>